left Abram last week, he was in a pretty good place. He was worshiping God, he was believing God's word, and he was having his faith credited credited to him as righteousness. Try and say that word, credited. Okay, um, I'm not I'm not a banker, so I'm not very good at that. Um, but he was in a good place. He knew he was he was understanding God as the God who not only makes covenants but the God who keeps covenants and who continues to keep covenant even when we break covenant with him. Even when we fail to hold up our end, God is still faithful, God is still reaffirming, God is still working. And Abram is seeing that and being encouraged in that and he has this great vision of God as the smoke as the smoking fire pot and the torch passing between the the pieces of the sacrificed animals saying, I will keep my covenant with you, Abram. And you would think that what we're going to read next is, and so Abram and Sarai trusted God, and they lived a life of faith, and they were affirmed in that, and God praised them, and it just worked out grandly, and then they had the child of promise, and then he had children, and then they, then they had children, and it just was just this explosion of blessing and wonderfulness. Not what happened, okay? Uh, the Repkes uh, already read the text for us, but what they decide to do is they decide that, you know, things aren't really progressing on their calendar, and God still hasn't come through quite yet on the timetable they would like with the child of promise, uh, who is going to be the, the forefather of all these descendants, and so they decide they're going to help God out, and they're going to do that through what I call Operation Handmaiden. And um, Abram and Sarai were people a lot like us. You know, they trusted God most of the time, well, at least some of the time, and they decided that, you know, there seems to be no way that God can bring this about through Sarai because, you know, she's an old lady at this point. She's well past menopause. Uh, if I, you find out that, that Abram is 86, you know that she is about 10 years younger. She's 76. The, the childbirth boat has sailed. I mean, it left the dock a while ago. And uh, they're going, well, there's no way this can happen. But, you know, men are a little, a little different uh, in terms of their reproductive life cycle. And so, you know, the old man uh, can maybe still make things happen. So how about, how about if I give you my slave girl? Oh, that's a brilliant idea, right? Because... Of course, God's word had, had, had nothing contradictory to say to that at all, right? Um, in the culture of this time, this is considered an acceptable way of going. That if you, as a woman, were barren, you could get a slave girl and give her to your husband, and the children that were born would be recognized legitimately as yours. This is kind of like what Abram was suggesting last week. Well, Eliezer, my servant, is going to be my heir. God says, no, not Eliezer, child from your own body. And apparently God needed to clarify, with your wife, Sarai, not some other lady that you just happened to kind of come up with. Uh, So Sarai has this fantastic idea why don't we try polygamy? That always works well. Uh, so remember this. Remember this. Now, those of you who are at this wedding uh, that we did yesterday, which was fantastic, by the way, 
a great celebration. Uh, if you missed it, you really missed out. It was wonderful to be able to participate in that. Uh, but God, I'll remind you of this again. God said in the beginning, uh, Jesus says it this way, in the beginning God made them male and female, and he said, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Singular. Note the singular. It's important. Male and female, singular wife. Okay? I know in our culture we get these things confused, so I just want to be very clear. Male, female makes a marriage. And one wife, not wives, plural. Okay? Um, and you would be hard-pressed, if you go through your whole Bible, you'd be hard-pressed to find an a explicit statement where God says, do not marry more than one wife. Now, God does say that with reference to the king of Israel. Don't do that. But outside of that, you'd be hard-pressed as you go through your Bible to find another really clear statement against polygamy. You also get the requirement for deacons and elders in the New Testament that says, husband of one wife, or actually literally man of one woman is how it reads. Um, so one man, one woman, that's it. Um, but what you do see as you read your Bible is this, is that every time somebody tries this polygamy idea, it's disastrous. It's an absolute, unmitigated, uh, unvarnished disaster. It's horrible. Because what happens immediately is that there is rivalry between the women, and you have this passive man who's kind of letting all of this go on, and there is fighting and hostility in his house from that day until forever afterward. There is fighting and hostility among the wives. There's fighting and hostility among the children. The children try and kill one another in many cases. You pick, you look at the big examples, you've got Abram. Uh, that worked out well because we've got Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, and Isaac, the father of the Jews. And there's not been any conflict in that, um, you know, generation to generation, right? Uh, you, you've not had any problems in the household of David who tried this on, right? Uh, one son kills, the other one winds up in exile. Then he winds up having his kingdom taken from him by that son, who then has to get killed, who then gives rise to another uh, son by the illegitimate wife that he grabbed from somebody who was, you know, who was married to somebody else. And that son kills another son, one of his half-brothers, as he ascends the throne. So yeah, that was a good idea. And of course, Solomon and his, all of his wives, he's the poster child for why polygamy is a bad idea, because he is... Um, he has all of these wives, and they lead his heart astray from the Lord. And then it introduces idolatry back into the nation, and the northern half of the nation actually winds up going into exile shortly after Solomon's reign because they've all become idolatrous. Well, where did that idolatry come from? Introduced by Solomon with all of his wives. Okay, You've got Jacob. I forgot to mention him. We'll get to him later. He tries this on with four women. One of them winds up uh, being the favorite son because he was the son of the wife he actually wanted to marry. And they sell, the other brothers sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites, interestingly enough. This is always, always, always a bad idea 
if any of you uh, were confused about this, I hope I've made that very clear, because the Bible makes it clear that this is always, always, always a disaster. And it's a disaster even before the baby is born with Hagar. There is rivalry and fighting among the women. Sarai starts abusing her servant. And by the way, where did Hagar come from? The text makes the point that she's an Egyptian. And when she flees, she's going back to Egypt, back home. She's on the road to Shur, which is a town in Egypt. And she's on the way back home. Where did they get her? Well, one of two places. Either she was part of the household of his father that he was supposed to leave behind in Haran, in which case she has grown up in Abram's house, which makes it completely creepy that he is now her husband. Or he picks her up as part of the dowry he got for Sarai when he lied about her being his wife when they went to Egypt, which they weren't supposed to be in. So either way, this is a bad scene. And it becomes just this very difficult, conflicted situation. And imagine, by the way, if you are this poor lady, that your mistress comes to you and says, hey, by the way, I'm an old woman, can't have children, uh, so um, your next assignment is to go visit my husband at his tent. Can you imagine as a woman anything more degrading than that? It, you already are owned by these people. And now you're going to have to give up not just your dignity, but your body in service to this, this couple. This is a bad, bad scenario. And it is not getting better. She conceives, she has a baby, she gets abused by her mistress and has to run away. And while she is on the road back home, the angel of the Lord meets her. And it's, this, it's an amazing, amazing thing that God is going to intervene in this situation. It says, you meet this figure, this is the first time you see him in your Old Testament. This figure who's called the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord. And you will meet this figure as you read your Old Testament over and over and over and over. There are lots of angels that are uh, described in the scripture. Uh, among the most prominent are Gabriel and Michael that come up. But you also see this figure, the, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. And that, I believe, is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And I say pre-incarnate, what I mean by that is before the incarnation, before the second person of the Trinity takes on a human nature and becomes Jesus of Nazareth, he still exists because he's still eternal. And he appears as the angel of the Lord to people. And one of the people who he appears to is Hagar, this Egyptian slave girl. And he says, what are you doing? Where are you going? And it's not that, it's not that I mean, this is God that is speaking, so it's not that he's ignorant. 
of where she's headed or what's up. But he, many times I think when God asks us, what are you doing? It's kind of like when a parent asks, what are you doing? It isn't because we don't know. Amen? You know, catch the kid in the, free, in the, in the freezer. He's got the popsicle stick in his mouth. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Mm, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you supposed to be eating that? You know, he says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Hagar. And he, because he wants her to acknowledge what she's doing. And he says to her, you need to go back. And when you go back, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with a great increase in the number of your descendants so that they'll be too numerous to count. In other words, she is going to share in the same blessings as Abraham because the child she bears is Abram's child. We're going to graft you in. God has taken notice of you. He says, you are now with child, and you will have his a son, and you will name him Ishmael. El is the word for God. Ishmael is the, is the word hears. He says, name your child, God hears. Because God heard your cry of misery. In other words, God looked down and he saw all that was going on. These are the people that I chose, Abram and Sarai, to be my representatives on earth, to make covenant with them, to do the right thing, to be the light for the nations, to carry forward the promises of God. Now, he did not choose them in light of the, uh, in, because they were such wonderful people. But in spite of the fact that they were not wonderful people, that they were not sinless, in spite of the fact that they were not perfect, in spite of the fact that they engaged in major sin, God chose them anyway. And in spite of the fact that they, are, they have put this poor lady in a huge mess, in the middle of all their scheming to somehow enable God to follow through, God says to her, you name your boy God hears because I have heard you. I'm aware of what's going on, and I am with you in it, and I will watch over you. And she, he says also, now you're, this boy will be a wild donkey of a man. In other words, he's going to be untamed and strong, and he will live in hostility against all his brothers, and he does. He does become the father of the Arab people. And that makes the situation of the fulfillment of promise to Abram and Sarai much more complicated than it would have had to been if they had trusted in him. Amen? Uh, it, in fact, it's a little bit of poetic justice, as I mentioned. Abram's grandson, Joseph, is going to be sold into slavery. But he's going to be sold into slavery to a group of who? Ishmaelites. And they're going to take him down to Egypt where he's going to be a slave for a number of years and then he's going to rise to become prime minister of Egypt. And then there's going to be a famine again in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, 
And just like their grandfather, Abram, bugged out of the land and go down to Egypt, they're going to all go down to the land. And when they get there, they're going to eventually be enslaved. So it's going to come back around, not on Abram, but on his descendants, that they're going to be slaves and understand what it's like. God is going to work this all out. But that's still a couple of generations off. And she names the place where she meets God, Be'ir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. The well of the living one who sees me. Because this is a memorial to her experience. This lady, I don't know if she was a worshiper of the sun god or what. You know, as an Egyptian, you could believe in anything and everything, and they did. But this lady comes back believing in the living God, well of the living one who sees me. She comes back a God-fearer, a worshiper of the true God. And when she comes back and she tells them the name of her son, it is a giant rebuke. Abram and Sarai for everything they have just done. And in fact, Abram follows through. Can you imagine how this conversation went? Oh yeah, hey, that God that you pretend to serve, or that you at least claim to serve, the one who continues to make covenant with you though you are faithless and have been faithless to me, that God, I met him on the road. And he said, that I'm going to have a boy, and when the boy is born, you're to name him Ishmael, God hears, because he heard my cry for misery living in life with you. Can you imagine what kind of a a conversation that would be? And they take the rebuke, by the way. Abram does name the child just exactly as she said God should have him named. A um, couple things here, and I'll wrap up quickly. This story has a lot to teach us, probably more, and definitely more than I have time to really address. Um, but I want to just highlight a few things that are really important by way of encouragement to you and me. That number one, and you can write this down, refusing to trust God by going with our own plan always, 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 always makes things worse, not better. Refusing to trust God by going with our own plan always makes things worse, not better. And I can give you example after example after example after example. I've been a pastor now for 10 years, and I have seen you get a front row seat to people and their sin as a pastor, and you see people who trust God and decide they're going to honor Him no matter what it costs, and you see people who decide, I've got my own idea on how this is going to work, and I'm going to try it out. And in every single case where someone says to themselves, you know what, I got this wired, God, just hang on here, y'all watch this, okay? That's a redneck's famous last words, all right? Y'all watch this. Okay, um, I'm serious. Every single time that this happens, someone 
tells the Lord, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own. I've got my own idea as to how this is going to work. It always ends up in disaster. And it might not be a disaster like Abram and Sarai experienced. It might not be a disaster like Hagar went through, but it's a disaster all the same. This is the infallible guide for how to live your life in a way that will actually work. And deviating from this is a, as sure a recipe as I know for, for having um, some of those type of things that are the name we all give to our experience, right? Experience is what we gain after we needed it, right? And, and herein is wisdom where God outlines very specifically how to, how to conduct yourself in a marriage, how to conduct yourself in a business, how to conduct yourself as a parent, as a child, as, a, uh, as just a citizen of a country. God gives us specific instructions about all these things. And whenever we say to him, you know what? Shell of that, I, I have wisdom. And I'm going to figure this out. No, you're not. It's going to be a disaster. Second thing, number two, it's not because of, it's not because of, but in spite of who we are and what we've done, that God chooses us and calls us into covenant with him and uses us to accomplish his purposes. It is not because of who we are and what we've done, but in spite of who we are and what we've done, that God calls us and chooses us and calls us into covenant with him and uses us to accomplish his purposes. I'll say this, I've said this once, I'll say it probably a dozen more times as we walk through the story of Abram. You look at these folks and you go, boy, it has some holes in their character, and they did. And you know what? You do too, and so do I. And if our story was written in here, we wouldn't look very good either. But here's the thing. God chooses us not because of who we are and because of what we do, but in spite of who we are and what we do, that he chooses us and calls us into covenant with him and uses us to accomplish his purposes so that God might be glorified because look what he had to work with. Okay? God chooses us. That's what amazing grace means. That God chooses you and chooses me, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. In spite of the fact that we are lousy and rotten and spoiled and defaced and sinful and messed up from head to toe, inside and out, in spite of that, God chooses to use us and transform us and to uh, give grace to us and to call us into covenant with him and to make us completely different than we were to start with. In spite of all that, in spite of all the junk in us, God uses us anyway. And last, God is the living one who sees and hears. Sometimes life beats us down, amen? Sometimes we get into tough situations, and sometimes it's through our own bad choices that have come back to bite us, and sometimes it's that we're a victim 
of somebody else's bad choices that we just get the blowback from. And when you're in one of those situations, it's awfully tempting to think God is on leave. He does not see me. He cannot hear me when I cry out. My prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. The sky is like brass, and the windows are are like solid lead, and God cannot hear me, see me, reach me, know me. He doesn't care about me. But here in this text... God gives Hagar a reminder and us a reminder that, you know what? No matter what happens, no matter how much barn stall contents hit the fan, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you go through, God is the God who is alive, who sees, and who hears, and on top of that, acts on your behalf because he loves you and he loves you no matter what you've done or do or have done or will do no matter who you are God loves you and he acts on your behalf he sees he hears acts for you let's pray God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of prayer, a God who sees, a God who hears, a God of grace, who in spite of who we are, in spite of the fact that we are miserable sinners who are in permanent rebellion against God until you come into our life by your Holy Spirit and save us by the blood of your Son, in spite of all that, Father, you love us and you change us and you make us yours. And Father, we thank you. We, we can't thank you enough, in fact, for your amazing grace, for your wonderful love, for your incredible mercy, which does not give us what we deserve, but gives us instead what we have not earned and could not merit, the love of God and a relationship with you and a home in heaven. And Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified in our lives as in all things. We pray in Jesus' name.